Welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gas Lewis Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslewitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts are Robert Port and today we're talking about women and wealth, unique opportunities and obstacles faced by women. And I noticed when Adam, when uh, when uh, Robert introduced us, he dropped the name Craig Frankel, which I I think is kind of troubling. But let's go ahead and introduce <laughs> our guest. So we have today uh, Jessica Reese Fagan, a partner with Hedgepath Heredia Law; Stacy Handley, a partner with Lefkoff Duncan; and Lisa Brown, a partner with Brightworth. And let's just give our, our our listeners a chance to kind of know who you are. Starting with, let's say, oh, Lisa, tell us who you are and what you do. Good morning, Lisa Brown. I'm a financial advisor with Brightworth. We provide two services to our clients, financial planning and investment management. Um, Most of our clients are individuals who have a certain level of complexity with their money and they don't have the time or desire to figure it out themselves. And so they come to us to hire the experts and make sure their money's on track. Stacy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Great. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here today. Um, I deal with issues related to women wealth pretty much every day in my legal practice, which consists of tax and estate planning and estate administration. Uh, women clients typically come to me when there's been major life events, marriage, having kids, divorce, death of a spouse, dealing issues related to incapacity of their parents. On a personal level, these issues are very important to me because my dad died about five years ago and I can remember my mom dealing with the grief and the loss and getting on the phone with her life insurance agent and asking if she had any money. And so not only, so I think it's very important for women to understand their finances before there's a death so you can alleviate their fears and they can know they can live the rest of their lives out in financial security. And Jessica, tell us about yourself. Good morning, you two. I'm happy to be here today. My name is Jessica Reese Fagan. I am a family law attorney, which is to say I change lives. I divorce people. <laughs> I deal with custody, child support issues. I, um, my Instagram handle, if you would like to follow us, is at ATL Family Law. But for the most part, I work with people going through a huge change in their lives, whether they're negotiating a prenuptial agreement before they get married, a postnuptial agreement when there's been a major change, but they do wish to stay married, or if they decide to separate, I handle divorces. And then after that, sometimes there are frequent flyers that come back because they have child support issues or modifications because, believe it or not, children are not houseplants, so they do grow and change and have opinions. And so, you know, what may have worked when a child was four changes by the time they're 13 or 14. So that's a little bit about what I do. So thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Um, As uh, we were preparing for the show, there's a number of, I'll call them statistics, but let's say they're sort of... um, uh, demographic issues that that face women that that some of which surprised me some of which I sort of understood and I'm going to throw these out there because I think it'll be a basis for the discussion we're going to have so for example women on average live longer than men but earn less uh, women often save less for retirement and a lot of that's because they come in and out of the workplace there's also pay disparities uh, women have different insurance needs uh, Stacy you've already referred to that uh, women often delegate their uh, financial uh, decision-making, money issues to their, their spouse or partner. 
Um, and again, on average, uh, women tend to be more risk adverse money-wise than, than men. And uh, as Jessica, I'm sure, will confirm, on average, uh, many women experience a drop in their standard of living after a divorce. So each of those factors, and I think many others, impact what each of you do in your respective uh, professions. So maybe starting with Lisa, in terms of the things that come first to mind when you think about uh, what we've described as the unique opportunities and obstacles faced by women. Mm -hmm. What what comes to mind uh, immediately when you think of that? So the number one question that every client has when they come to us for the first time is they want to understand, have I saved enough for retirement? And will I have enough in retirement? And when it comes and to- And the answer is always no. <laughs> well, you know, the, ni the nice thing is surprisingly, you know, some people are in better shape than they realize they are. You know, over the years, they may have just kind of put their head down and, you know, raised their family and put some money to the side and then realized, wow, you know, I, it actually has accumulated into enough. So a lot of times we're able to give good <clears throat> news, but many times the answer is, well, you need to work a little, a little bit longer, cut back on your expenses. Um, but in t particularly for women, one of the things that we find is that, you know, the longevity of the life expectancy is a big concern. So, you know, many times I'll see the, for a married couple, the husband will joke around, well, I'm not, I'm not making it past 75 because no man and man in my family has made it past 75. So I just need to run the numbers to make sure, you know, at least make sure I have enough till I'm 75. But that's not the case for the woman. You know, she's very concerned about making sure she's got enough money and also leaving money to the children. You know, typically women are more concerned about passing on an inheritance to their children than the men have that as a goal. So longevity and what can I leave behind um, are two major retirement planning um, com conversations that we have uh, with women. Are you seeing a difference between women who are coming in with their spouses and they're more mature and they've had children who are either teenagers or college kids? versus women coming in either alone or with spouses that are younger, where they haven't quite gone through the earning process? Definitely. So typically, the younger couples, um, you tend to find the wife is a little bit more, has been more engaged in finances and is more engaged in finances versus the um, spouse that's coming in where the children are raised and she's coming in with her spouse and maybe they're a little bit closer to retirement or just into retirement, she tends to have been less engaged um, with the finances. And so sometimes there's a little bit more catching up to do, getting up to speed about where the family finances stand. Um, but for younger clients, I tend to see those spouses a little bit more equally engaged in the financial um, decision making and financial status of their lives. And Stacy, when you think about the type of uh, demographic issues I described, what comes to mind with respect to your practice in well, this uh, estate planning? Unfortunately, I see a lot of situations where women don't truly understand the estate plan. They kind of want to know, is the money going to me? But then they don't ask the follow-up question of, yes, it's going to you, but with certain restrictions. And they don't realize that they've ended up in a trust with their children as equal beneficiaries or situation where they ended up in a trust where the children from the first marriage are in a trust with them and and so I think uh, the uh, before you go, go on to that actually explain that because as I know the statistics you know 50% of everybody will divorce 25% of those will remarry twice and so there's going to be a lot of blended families so when you say a trust with a, 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 a separate family tell tell our listeners what that means sure well what happens is you know 
second marriage comes in and a couple comes in for estate planning, they haven't had a prenup or maybe they have a prenup and we're redrafting wills and in a situation I've seen occur through through estate tax savings where money is put into a trust where the wife and the children of the second marriage are in a trust where you know one kind of envelope and, and a lot of times the wife is the trustee of the trust for her the children of the first marriage and you see a lot of conflict arise when those children want money for private school or they want money to do whatever and the yeah. wife is kind of like well hey i'm supposed to be the primary beneficiary this is money for me during my life Ima Not imagine that as a <laughs> stepchildren and their stepmom getting into it with each other right so i think you know a lot of you know women will ask oh yes the money is going to me but don't ask the follow-up question under what conditions is that money going to me or what restrictions are put on me with that money so my goal is hopefully to explain to them to read the documents and explain and to ask them what do you want to happen here i have i have a lot of clients women clients and i ask that question what do you want to happen like well no one's ever asked me that i don't know well you know, let's think about what you want to happen and Jessica, when you think of these types of issues, what what's first comes to mind in your practice area of uh, domestic relations? Well, I don't know if y'all remember that graphic, knowledge is power. You know, <laughs> yeah. So for me, I need knowledge. And a lot of times clients come and they simply don't know. You know, there's enough money, so they're in a great position and they've never really had to look. What is the paycheck say? What is the pay stub? How much is the gross? How much is the net? How much are being taken out for taxes? Do you have voluntary health contributions? Do you have a disability plan? Do you have a long-term retirement plan? People don't know how much their cell phone costs. They just, it just gets paid. So when I am trying to do, so in family law, we have something called a domestic relations financial affidavit. It's really your budget. I really recommend everybody go and sit down and it is awful. I am giving you the worst homework you'll ever have, but it goes through your budget. My wife and I did it. Um, she's outraged. Right. What is this? How much do we spend on our cell phone? No, how much is cable television? That's always my argument with my husband. Do we need the sports? So you go through and you look at your financial affidavit and you see how much is our mortgage? How much is our HOA? How much are we spending on lawn care? And you look and you actually see how much it costs to be your family. And then on the flip side, you also see what are your assets? What are your debts? Because for me, a lot of people come in and the hardest reality of divorce really is it's a lot of money to maintain two households. Mm -hmm. It's much more cost effective to have one household. It's much easier to build wealth with one brokerage account or one retirement account than when you separate them. So when you're looking at it, you have to look at the realities of what you have, what you don't have. And a lot of people, I mean, that's a little tough love that we have to give them, that you're just not gonna be able to maintain the status of, in, that you're used to. Because, and everyone has this idea that, well, with divorce, doesn't he have to pay me alimony or doesn't she have to pay me alimony to maintain my standard of living? Well, no. In Georgia, it's need versus ability to pay. And as my daddy would like to tell me, you can't get blood from a turnip. So if somebody just doesn't have the money, they can't maintain that status of living. And so you might not have the country club membership anymore. You might not be driving the luxury car and it's gonna be okay. And that's the hardest part. And when, when we were getting ready for the show, Jessica shared with me an interesting uh, observation or statistic. You wanna share that with our listeners and we'll, we can take it from there? Sure, there's a couple of things that came out. The CDC just recently released a report on how often people are getting divorced and with what frequency. But also an interesting statistic I told Robert was 61% of women would rather discuss the details of their own death than money. They would literally rather go to a cocktail party and talk about, you know, how they want to die mm -hmm. than talk about how much money they have saved. 
And that's just terrible. I mean, and I don't know when it happened that we stopped talking as women about money. Mm-hmm. Well, I, when did you start? That's kind of my <laughs> question. Lisa, you had mentioned uh, when you were talking about it that women often care more about inheritances for children. Is there something that you're seeing among women that they have a different attitude towards how one should invest different than, than your typical male client? So women tend to put, you know, taking care of the family first in terms of many aspects of their life, including their money. So it's more about I would rather not lose than win versus men tend to have a little bit more of a I would rather be winning with my money and I don't have as much fear of losing. So women. So an approach to risk. An approach to risk. Absolutely. Um, and and I think that also goes to the longevity thing. Again, I want to make sure I always have money. You hear, I hear that comment, the stereotypical bag lady concern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I have clients that have several million dollars, and she's concerned about being a bag lady. And you know, right or wrong, rational, irrational, that's her concern and her goal. How do we meet th- meet that objective to make sure she's consistently aware of the finances? how much she has, how much she can spend, and what, again, can be left over for the children. And can she help the children while she's retired? You know, just because your children are, you know, through college doesn't mean the family wants to totally cut them off. I see a lot of couples. And you may have boomerang children? Absolutely. You see boomerang children, but you also see, you know, people, I have people the first 10 years of retirement, they're still giving decent sums of money to their children. I want to help them buy a first home or I want to make sure they've got a little bit extra money because my daughter wants to stay at home and raise her children the first few years and therefore her income's going away and I want to give her that opportunity to do that or I want to help pay for private school for my grandchildren or say for their college. So um, a lot of the financial goals that women have aren't the number one, two, three goals that a lot of male clients have. So Lisa, tell us the challenge you're presented with when you have, as, as Jessica indicated, women who either don't want to talk about money or are perhaps more risk adverse than men. Uh, because the, the challenge is you have to have some risk to get mm-hmm. a return on your investments. So describe how you go through that process with somebody. Yeah, so that's exactly right. You, For most families, they can't afford to put all the money under the mattress and, and be okay because we've got this nasty thing called inflation out there, which is the number one risk to all retirees is inflation. It's the cost of you know, airline tickets and bread and gasoline being triple 20 years from now than, than what they cost today. And so, long-term care. And long-term care. And health care. I, mean, I, I think most people are aware of how much health care expenses have been going up over the years mm-hmm. and will continue to go up. Um, and so you need part of your assets to be growing, like invested in stocks that have the ability to grow and outpace inflation over time. Um, so, you know, the balance here is we have to look at the whole financial picture, what are, what's in the retirement accounts, what's in cash savings, et cetera, and make sure the whole picture is working. And so what I find tends to work well with um, somebody who's risk averse is to position the cash piece. For example, we have X amount of cash in your bank account. That means you have one, three, five years of your living expenses sitting in cash in the bank. So if something really bad were to happen, you can keep maintaining your lifestyle for 
you know, the next one, three, five years without having to worry about anything. So that cash in the bank is like the, the child's blankie, you know, it's that security net. So for you're a, a mediator between the spouses. You have, you, you know, we don't ever have training in my industry how to do that, but that's very true. You, and, and it's so important and you can do that so much better when both spouses are willing to attend the meetings. We do have, you know, some situations where one spouse just doesn't want to engage is, is not involved. And that's a much harder um, situation because you don't know if you're adequately supporting both spouses goals if there's only one person communicating so I really encourage all married couples both spouses need to attend the meetings they need to be aware and be part give, of the conversation give us, give us a, a kind of an estimate how many of your clients come with spouses how many percentage-wise come without spouses I would say um, for the initial meeting where we present their financial plan for the first time, we, don't, we pretty much insist both spouses are in that room. Ongoing, I would say about 80% come together and 20% come alone. And Jessica, you find that the kind of the opposite is true when people are coming in for you? <laughs> well, I, I would have a uh, conflict of interest if both people came in at the same That's time. That's not what I mean, but I mean where one did not know the financials because the other spouse was the one who attended. Oh, all the time. And sometimes what someone knows is the exact opposite of what the other party knows. So maybe one party is really invested in knowing their investment strategy, their retirement strategy, but has no clue how much money is spent on groceries. And then that's always a fun conversation, right? Why is so-and-so spending so much money you know, at Whole Foods? Why, oh my gosh, this bill at Publix is so high, they must be pulling out cash. No, darling, you have two teenage boys. That's how much it costs. And so sometimes the hardest part about my job, and I assume it's the same for you two, is that you have to educate a lot on the realities of what life costs. I mean, a blonde, it costs more to keep her hair done than a brunette. (laughs) I don't don't understand. (laughs) Why are you laughing? You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts today, Craig Frankel and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaswich Frankel. We're talking with Jessica Reese Fagan, uh, Stacey Hanley, and Lisa Brown, and we're talking about women and wealth, unique opportunities and obstacles faced by women. So Stacey, let's focus for a second on estate planning. And an issue we often see in our practice is the lack of communication and transparency of when uh, parents create an estate plan and and uh, have children. So let's talk about that in terms of the the husband wife uh, relationship, if if you will. Give us your thoughts on how that type of topic goes to the issues we're talking about today. Again, in estate planning, it's very important to have both spouses. In, and you know, we typically represent both the husband and wife in the estate planning, unless a conflict arises where divorce or things like that. But again, what I find in these meetings a lot of times and is sometimes I find women afraid to ask the questions where the husband and the other lawyer are kind of talking through high level tax issues and and state taxes. You kind of see, you know, sometimes eyes kind of glaze over and kind of afraid to ask the questions. And sometimes I see them looking at me like, am I okay? Am I going to be okay? And a lot of times I will reassure after the fact or the, the woman will invariably the wife will call me after the meeting and say, well, that's not exactly what I wanted. You know, that's not kind of what we talked about. And it's also for me just putting things in layman's terms. I start throwing out a bunch of legalese and again, and, and no one really, really understands what, what happens. So it's very important that we explain it and come and speak about what is going to happen. And, 
and uh, dealing with children I start seeing a difference where when when parents have adult children and all of a sudden they drafted wills 15 years ago where there's mandatory distributions of 25 30 35 to their kids well now these adult kids have grandchildren who now become more important than the children Mm -hmm. and I know my mom told me I need now I know I had children was to have grandchildren I never thought you were this cute and now they want to make sure that money is going to the grandchildren and they don't want a bad marriage a bad business decision impacting money going to their you know to their grandchildren when you say bad marriage you're referring to marriage of their children yes because that is a big issue for any family yes yeah, so what happens is, yeah, if, if, I, if I'm getting a mandatory distribution at 30 and all this money is coming out to me, well, now that's something Jessica can go grab onto. It becomes equitable division of property. But that money's just staying in trust, and I get divorced. It's hopefully, it stays in the trust, and it's going to be there for my children, which would be my mom's grandchildren. Lisa, you had mentioned that, you, that when, when you introduce yourself that you typically handle more uh, uh, families that have complexity with money. And, and, and we've been talking a lot about spouses. Uh, do you have uh, women coming in who don't have spouses? Absolutely. And is that a different approach that you have to handle? Uh, it, it depends on the circumstances of, of how and why they're coming in. So the approach uh, tends to be different when a woman's coming in who recently went through a um, divorce and now has a, a large sum of money from the settlement that she needs to make sure is handled properly or the death of a spouse. Um, and so that approach is different when a single female comes to us who maybe has never been married, has made her own money, you know, done her own savings and investing, and maybe it, it's got, you know, a little overwhelming for her at this point in her life, or she just wants to make sure she's on the right track. So um, it all goes back to at what po- at what level do we need to start the education process? So somebody who's never had a sum of money or maybe the other spouse has earned that money over the years and has managed that money themselves, she may need more of a entry level into the financial world versus somebody who's used to putting money in her 401k or managing her own savings account, is aware of what she's spending, has her own will. The level of the conversation starts at a different spot for those um, types of individuals. One of the um, unfortunate things that's happening more and more is elder abuse. And uh, I think, again, there's a demographic issue that's probably happening more and more to women. So let me ask each of you in your respective practices, uh, particularly with with single women. And I'll give you a statistic on this. I just went to a seminar. Because women do live longer, Mm -hmm. the statistic is that women are the victims of elder abuse two times more than men. And and there may be lots of reasons, but it does create Mm -hmm. a horrible opportunity. So what protections can you and your respective practices put in place to try and nip some of that in the bud? Let's, let's start with you, Jessica. So I think we've probably all read that gray divorces are on the rise. Historically, across the country, um, you know, the divorce rate's been 50%. Now it's actually 40% for a first marriage. But what's skewing that higher is actually older couples that are divorcing. And what happens a lot and what I see a whole lot is when mom and dad are getting divorced, the adult children get very upset. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they think their parents can't possibly make this decision. Like, it's been 45 years. What are you doing? How, why, why can't you just suck it up and deal with it? And so we see couple, um, families come in to mediations 
where one child is in the room with one parent and the other child's in the room for the other parent. And even though I know that's not elder abuse per se, Mm -hmm. it's definitely putting a lot of pressure on an older person who has vastly different goals and expectations. And so what I've seen a lot is sometimes these children come in for the grandchildren and they're, well, you, don't you still need to pay for private school for this child? Or what about this one? What are you going to do? Are you going to pay for private college? And so it's not elder abuse per se, but I see that the younger generation comes in and really tries to put pressure on their parents. And so I don't have to deal with a lot of the abuse situation, but I think that for your listeners, I would really caution them on who gives advice to that older generation because I mean they might go and sign a will for a caregiver you know I mean they might go and give money to the person who comes and feeds the cats because that's the person that actually comes and you know just really be aware who's giving advice that actually applies across the board okay Stacy so let's talk about that situation where you could in fact late in life make a change in your will or a change in your distribution plan that does give it to the cat sitter what can you do to help protect your client, your, your, your female client from that, from the cat sitter. Yeah. Well, first I want to, there's always kind of a misconception where if I think, Oh, I just get a power of attorney for my mom, then, then I should be able to do that. I can act for my mom. Well, that's not stopping your mom from doing anything. That's just giving you also a right to deal with your mom's property. It's not stopping your mom from making a bad decision and the right to steal. Yes. And, and the right. Yes. And presumably power of attorney to be subject for fraud and gifting money to myself, that type of thing. And that, by the way, in our practice is a huge growth area where we're seeing powers of attorney abused by a variety of people, whether they be family members or caregivers. So one needs to pay very close attention to who you're giving the powers to and what restrictions you have in the powers. Correct. I've I've read recently someone jokingly commented that um, a power of attorney is the most effective means of theft be, mm. uh, besides a crowbar. Right. So I would advise my clients in a situation for have a revocable trust. So if it's a single, maybe it's a single parent who's left, I, we've, done, we've drafted situations where the, the parent, along with two children, are co-trustees, and two out of three wins the vote. And tell From, us what a revocable trust so is. So a revocable trust is also a living will, where you, you, it's, you have the right to revoke it, but you're putting money into trust. And then in the event, you... Uh, the donor become incapacitated, you've got someone to step in your place and act as a trustee who's held to a fiduciary, very high standard of conduct and acting in your best interest. So that it also stops you from harming yourself. For example, giving money to someone else, changing terms of your estate plan, you've been sort of protected in that way. Stacy, we often see uh, sort of the stang- standard language in trusts is that the there's a no bond requirement for a trustee, you know, and I think people put that in and never think about that. Have, have you ever contemplated whether that's something that ought to be actually focused on in each situation? I mean, I have not just because we want people to serve as trustees and the more you put requirements on them and restrictions, right. it's finding somebody who wants to deal with that. I mean, it's, you know, it becomes outside of having a corporate trustee, having a family member or someone take on the rest. It's a lot of responsibility. Cause we, so, we, in our practice, obviously, trustees who, who run right, amok regularly. Right, right. You've seen, yes, the opposite. So I've sort of, I guess, yes, been hoping for the best with these people. Lisa, what, what do you see in your in, in, in with your clients that you can do to help protect your clients from potential um, uh, elder abuse or, or people taking advantage of them? There's actually a client situation that comes immediately to mind on this. Um, so 
we have long-term relationships with our clients and I have a um, current situation where mom and dad are in their early 70s and they both um, their their mental capacity declined very quickly um, felt very sudden and they're both um, having round-the-clock care in a nursing home and the daughter is the trustee of the revocable trust and you know the daughter has not been involved in mom and dad's finances over the years they've they've been comfortable and doing a good job of, of paying their bills and take care of themselves but she's now looking to me to say well you know what have what have mom and dad been spending their money on or how much have they been giving to charity regularly because she knew that was very important to them and wants to make sure that in addition to covering mom and dad's you know medical bills and caregiving bills but what are some of the other areas mom and dad have been spending their money we have that history with our clients to be able to guide the trustee the daughter in this situation And on the same side, I've also been able to interject, well, you know, yes, mom has been paying for your children's private school tuition, but if you also are asking for a distribution, really you can decide as a trustee, but if you're getting wanted my advice as to whether you should take a distribution to also pay for four years of college for your child, that could put mom and dad's financial situation at risk. So we're able to not only provide the history behind what mom and dad have been spending their money on, what you're wanting to do is it reasonable or not reasonable and does it work with their financial plan Um, so we are an objective you know third party involved in the family's money and and I think it's also important that when you have a financial advisor involved another benefit is that there's another set of eyes watching so the family um, maybe be less likely to run amok with abusing the finances if they know there's another professional who is also a fiduciary looking over that family's money. So education, disclosure, education, disclosure. Absolutely, yes. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Robert Port and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary law firm of Guess Lewis Frankel. We are talking with Jessica Reese-Fagan, partner with Hedgepath Heredia Law, Stacy Hanley, partner with Lefkoff Duncan, and Lisa Brown, a partner with Brightworth. So Stacy, a young woman comes in. We're not yet at the divorce stage, and we're not at the, oh my God, we don't have a retirement plan and our grandchildren are going to college. Uh, when should somebody come in and talk to you, uh, a single female or a recently married female? I think they should come in. I mean, when you have, when you're working or anything, you need to be thinking about, I think everybody thinks an estate plan is just for death. And not that what happens if you become incapacitated? Who is going to manage your affairs? What happens if something you're in an accident in hospital? Who is making health care decisions for you? So I think those issues need to be addressed. And, and you, you know, start having assets and you start owning things. Where, where are they going to go? And the statistic, by the way, for disability is 80% of anybody will be disabled at some point in their life, either by an accident or by later in life. Right, and it could be just a short-term disability. Who's, you know, you're incapacitated, who has authority to write checks for you to make investment decisions, kind of keep the business of your life going if something hap- should happen to you. Um, kind of the issues I see with single women sometimes is choosing fiduciaries. Who are these people? I don't have a spouse to choose as my executor. So if I choose my sister, I don't like my sister. I mean, so a lot of times we talk a lot about fiduciary selection. Who are these agents that are going to act for me? And, and with a single woman, that sometimes can be hard to find. And and Stacy, as, as lawyers and financial advisors, we throw around the word fiduciary often. Can you give us a, a layperson's <laughs> assessment of what, what that phrase means? What's that word means? It's sort of an someone who acts as an agent for you, but is held to a high standard of conduct and care. 
They need to act in your best interest. That's someone who's acting, looking out for you. Thank you. Um, Jessica, let, let's talk a little bit about dividing property. There's a concept of equitable division in Georgia. Yes, let's discuss that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we can talk about money in a bank account and stocks and bonds, which is sort of easy. But then there's also more complicated issues, stock options, real estate, perhaps business interests. And then there's something called a quadro. Maybe tell our listeners <laughs> about that uh, as well. Sure. So, you know, I always joke, there's the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. That's not a political statement. That's just a fact. <laughs> I believe uh, there was a secretary of defense. There might have been someone who said that. I'm stealing that. Um, but the unknown unknowns, I've noticed with women, we are very hesitant to admit our ignorance sometimes. And I am more than happy to admit my ignorance on anything because I, I'm a nerd and I want to know knowledge. So I encourage every woman out there to learn what you don't know and ask the questions. So a quadro is a qualified domestic relations order. It is an order of the court dividing an asset, such mo most frequently a 401k retirement plan. It could be a 403b. It could be a pension. It's to divide that account. But going back to the unknown unknowns, a lot of times when you're dividing assets, you will see an investment account with a number. Merrill Lynch will tell you this account is worth X. And you look at that and you go, wow, X is a lot of money. But you don't realize that there's a loan on that account. And you don't realize there are tax consequences. And you don't realize all the intricacies. You know, But that number is actually a fake number. The real value of that number at the bottom is Y. And so I have a lot of parties that they try to do things. Um, probably my specialty is a negotiated uncontested where you know, you have to work out some issues, but for the most part, everyone's trying to be good humans and treat the other person with respect. But one of the issues that does come up is we get these accounts and they want to divide the assets. And again, like you mentioned, Robert, it's equitable division in Georgia, which means fairness. Mm -hmm. Fairness can differ from judge to judge, from person to person. And it's not 50-50. And it's not always 50-50. I mean, you know, it might, if people are divorcing in their 40s, one party may have a lot more earning potential long term. So he or she could earn back all those retirement assets. They work for a huge company like Google and they're going to get stock options and they're going to get benefits packages where the other party has not worked. Maybe they've stayed at home or they've pursued the career as a writer. And so equitable, what is actually fair, even though it may not feel fair to one party, would be to give someone more than 50% because they don't have the ability, that person has the ability to recoup the money. But you got to know what you're getting. You know, you might be able to look at a coffee pot and say, I know, I'm getting a so nice knowing, coffee pot. Know, knowing what you're getting, what could the female potential client coming in your door saying, I'm contemplating or my spouse is contemplating a divorce, what could that person do that would most help you? What could she bring in? Information. You know, I think, again, knowledge is power. I want my client to come in with a bank statement. You can go online, download the PDFs, do that, print them out. Go to you know FedEx if you have to. You know I would like them to come in with tax returns, W-2s, end-of-year pay stubs, anything you can get your hands on of themselves and their spouse and their spouse. You know I this is this is not legal advice. Let's put this disclaimer <laughs> out there. But if things are not going well in your marriage, start having the mail conversation. Open the mail together. Mm -hmm. Start, or if you can't, it's a federal offense to open someone else's mail without their permission. But if you open mail together or you start writing down where the envelopes come from, 
So you know, I don't know what is in that Merrill Lynch account, but I know that they, my spouse gets a Merrill Lynch envelope. I know there's an Iberia Bank envelope. Start writing down. I don't know what's in it. I don't. It could be eight dollars, but I know that we get mail from this bank or this that's, financial institution. That's becoming more difficult as so many things are online, though, and people try and eliminate the paper clutter. So, how, how do you do. deal with that issue? Well, you know, it's a funny thing, right? Talk to your spouse. You know, it's a communicate with your spouse. Ask the questions. If any of the listeners listening today are like, you know, I really don't know, go ask you have a right to ask it's not a rude question to ask your spouse hey who holds the mortgage do we have a line of credit you know you just put in a beautiful pool ask how did we pay for that did we take out a HELOC a home equity line of credit did you take a line of credit a personal line of credit do we have a fifty thousand dollar American Express bill that I don't know about you know how did we pay for this oh your parents are paying for that I should be nicer to your mother you know that kind of thing you know communicate so if someone walks into my office the more knowledge you can have and yes sometimes what I tell people when they come in is hey come back in three weeks you're gonna go Nancy drew this for a little bit and I need you to talk to your spouse I need you to talk to okay, his for those friends. younger listeners Nancy drew is this <laughs> book so one thing you that that you that I have seen happening that I really do recommend for all couples um, is to have the ability, is, is the transparency, is to give somebody, I do it with powers of attorney, and I do it with spouses, even if one person is managing the money and has the authority to control accounts, you can give authority to monitor or look at accounts. Are you seeing this happening more often, less often, Lisa? I have seen the trend over the years where um, both spouses are signing what's called the limited power of attorney to be able to view the other uh, person's investment accounts online. So for example, if I have uh, an individual retirement account, an IRA, it can only be in one person's name. And the way that the Merrill Lynch's of the world handle this from an online access is the accounts are linked up based on your social security number. So, you know, for example, if I have a joint account with my spouse, but they list my spouse's social security as primary when they set this up online, I can't go see that account unless I oftentimes have to sign what's called a limited power of attorney form with the Merrill Lynch's of the world. Um, so, so I'm finding that, um, uh, we're finding both spouses want to have more visibility into the accounts in each person's name as well as the joint assets. And I should mention, brokers don't always think the way uh, our guests here today think. So it's okay to ask for that access, that it, it's okay to say, wait, can I see this? So when you sit down with the broker or the financial advisor, ask the question, how do I get to see it? And we're also seeing, um, when you have other documents that are uploaded to an online portal, for example, um, both, you know, if one spouse doesn't know the username and password to access their family's portal, whether it's through their tax accountant or their financial advisor or any other professional that uses an online portal, they need to make sure that they do have their own login um, credentials as well, because that in a marriage, that is shared information, that should be shared information. So. You know, don't just assume that you cannot access something online. You can. You just have to go um, and speak. You know, with with the particular company to to get figure out what you need to do to get access. One one issue we often see, and this would cut across all your practices, is great confusion as to how assets are titled, whether they're in what's or called mistitled. or mistitled, whether they're in uh, joint rights of survivorship kind of situations or with respect to whether something's marital property, if for example, you've taken your family's inheritance and you've dumped it into a joint account, 
Jessica, tell us what decision. <laughs> Correct. Right. So title doesn't always control. And some people think, well, this is my retirement account. So why would he or she even touch it? And we're talking about women today, right? So here's a woman. Let's just take me. I'll just talk about myself. You know, I've had a 401k. I have worked for a long time and I even worked in college and I got benefits. And so when I have things titled in my name, that doesn't mean my husband will doesn't have a marital interest. It may not be a 50% interest. I, I might not think it's fair, but again, it is not necessarily what I think is fair. It's what the judge thinks is fair. So title and divorce do not, again, this is not legal advice, but do not assume that whoever's name is on it means it's theirs. And what I see a lot, and I don't know if y'all have all seen this, is when people anticipate a divorce, they start dumping money into custodian accounts because you're going to take money from junior because, but then, yeah, I'm going to take money from Junior. You are the one that hid it in there away from the, my client. Of course, we're going to go take the money for Junior because guess who is actually going to give it to Junior? You know, that kind of thing. So don't assume that because you put money in people's, in a certain name, that that really means anything, except, you know, to Lisa's point, who gets to see it necessarily. And Lisa, are you seeing that when people come to you and they think they have it titled right, that they're correct? Rarely. <laughs> just just like, you know, when, when people come to us for the first time, we ask the question, do you have a will? Do you have an estate plan? Everybody ducks their head under the desk, so yeah. <laughs> they never do. Um, so most people do not understand or, or have titling done correctly. They also have disastrous beneficiary designations on their life insurance and retirement accounts, meaning there are no beneficiaries designated or they have... Um, a designation that will cause a very bad tax problem um, if or they, they were haven't to pass away. changed right. it from their ex or they haven't spouse. changed it from their first marriage. So, Stacy, are you seeing the same thing when people come in? Are they? I have a joke that I tell people that if they're coming in for estate planning and we're seeing it afterwards, that if their lips are moving, they're wrong. Correct. Yeah, that happens a lot of times where the beneficiary designations or the titling of the accounts completely conflicts with the estate plan. We've spent all this time drafting it and doing this thing, and especially in a second marriage situation where it was supposed to be held in trust and then went to the kids, and then, well, no, it was joint tenancy right of survivorship. It's going directly to the spouse. The kids are out. So it's very important to look at the titling of the accounts and the beneficiary designations. Get documentation. Correct, yes. Okay, so we're, we're, we're nearing the end of our very fast show. And so I'm going to ask each of you to tell us the best time, what happened where you had a female client come in and it was the best result because either they were extremely well-educated or because they followed your advice or tell me what your greatest success story is with a female client, starting with Stacy. Well, I'm going to keep it personal as I talked about this in the beginning. It was definitely empowering my mom and watching a transformation of someone who I could basically helped her be a an executor and manage my dad's estate and go from having no knowledge and being scared to being an empowered woman. And that's something I would want for all of my clients to be educated about their finances, be able to make investment decisions, and basically just take control of their lives. Lisa, what's your success story? I worked with a married couple for about 10 years before, unfortunately, they got divorced, and this was a great divorce, and she had never um, had much knowledge about finances or really been engaged. She always let her husband handle it. And Obviously, going through a divorce is very emotional, very difficult. Within about a year after that divorce, and we were meeting kind of on the other side of things, she understood her finances. She had a clear idea of what she was spending. 
what the wealth was and she had a big smile on her face she just felt so much better about her life because she was in control she was out of a bad marriage she was moving forward with confidence and security and that to me was a fabulous outcome and jessica your last best success story for a female client i'm not even going to pick one I think to echo what everyone says, when you have a woman that comes in at the very beginning, no one ever imagines seeing themselves in a divorce lawyer's. You know, I can call myself a domestic relations attorney or a family lawyer, but at the end of the day, it's a lot of divorce and nobody anticipates ever being there. You don't stand on the altar for better or for worse and think, well, let me go put this asunder at the end of the day. So when at the end of the process, when I have a woman who looks at me and gives me a hug, I'm a hugger, so I hug my mm-hmm. clients, you know, and they feel empowered and they respect themselves at the end of the process and they didn't white trash it up and drag the other person through the mud they stood tall on their sh- in their heels and they showed their children especially if it's female children i will stand up for what i want but i will be nice and i will be classy and so that's a success story for me when a woman walks away and she really is empowered and she's just I, you know, I joked at the beginning, I changed lives, but you know, from the beginning of a divorce process to the end is a journey. And I think at the end as women, if we can all support each other and hold each other up and be awesome at the end, that is a success. Mm-hmm. It, it's as you said, knowledge is power. So we're uh, almost at the close of our show. So we'd like each of you to provide our listeners uh, whatever contact information you'd care to, email, phone number, website, hashtag. So uh, let's start with you, Lisa. Sure. My company is Brightworth. Our web address is www.brightworth.com, B-R-I-G-H-T-W-O-R-T-H. And our phone number is 404 760 9,000, and our office is in Buckhead. Stacy. Yes, it's Stacy Hanley, and our law firm is Lefkoff Duncan. It's lefkoff-duncan.com is the website, and I can be reached at 404-262-2000. And Jessica. Jessica Reese Fagan. I'm with Hedgepath Heredia. Don't worry, we don't ask you to spell it. It's <laughs> hhfamilylaw.com, or you can follow me on Instagram. What? It's at atlfamilylaw. <laughs> Or you can follow me on Twitter, which is HH underscore ATL Family Law. We want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gesluitz Frankel, please go to our website at gesluitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Jessica Reese Fagan, partner with Hedgepath Heredia. Stacy Hanley, a partner with Lefkoff Duncan, and Lisa Brown, a partner with Brightworth. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters at, on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.